for this episode, we have a special guest, Austin Tang, and a special co-host for this episode, and I would like to introduce them. Austin Tang is an architect and photographer who has worked extensively in Asia and in the United States. Most recently, he spent 11 years based in Hong Kong. The architectural projects he was involved with include the West Kowloon Cultural District and the Tijian Monastery in Taipo in the New Territories. Last year, a book of his photography was published titled Stuff I Saw Yesterday. He is now settled back in the Bay Area teaching at the University of San Francisco. He has also taught design at Harvard University Graduate School of Design and at the Chinese University of the Earth Sciences in Beijing. David Yum is an architect practicing in New York with his own office since 2000. His office has won the New York AIA and the New Jersey AIA awards for the project for the Evening Land Winery in California. He has taught at Harvard University GSD NGIT and FIT. He is also my husband and special co-host of this episode. So welcome. Thank you. Hi there. Austin, I think you were the last person we saw in Hong Kong before we headed back to the States on August 12, 2019, right. a date I will never forget. <laughs> and you guys were completely and impeccably orderly, uh, had all your luggage lined up in a row and everything was in perfect order. Yeah, I remember. When we saw you for lunch, it was such a nice civilized orderly way to say goodbye to our friends and then once we headed to the airport it felt like we're in a different world altogether but you know it was something that um we felt was you know part of history and i'm grateful for the experience and i think it's something that um you know i'll never forget and I actually saved the front page of the south china morning post yeah quite an exciting exit you made <laughs> well i just want to sort of get back to the basics and just ask how did you two become friends at the Harvard Graduate School of Design? Um, well, the, the, the usual camaraderie that builds up through uh, the usual camaraderie that gets uh, started through long hours in the studio. And in particular at the GSD, there are those uh, trays, sort of like terraces. And I would find myself peering off into the distance often with David hanging by the same rails and exchanging architectural philosophies, the ongoing uh, problems we were facing in the studio and so found a comrade in arms uh, in that respect. Did you feel competitive with each other or was it more of a collegial kind of atmosphere? No, I actually don't think so. I don't know from David's side, he's here, he can comment it, but, but I think we were actually so different in our approaches that it was really a pleasure and a marvel to see how his thinking was unfolding. It was really much much the opposite for me. I think that uh, I was often so intrigued that someone would uh, be approaching the problem from a way that I didn't really was not familiar with at all, and um, found that very uh, invigorating and inspiring to see how many different ways one could um, could treat the same question. I know with graduate school you enter with a certain set of preconceived notions and then um, I guess through you know seminars and practice and studio you evolve a different way what was your approach that was different from others you think uh, approach to architecture well my the, the approach to the specifically I, I think the approach to graduate school for me was different which was I thought they were going to teach me <laughs> which which they do of course they have ample facilities but i really showed up as a kind of naive person saying i'm going to go to graduate school and they're going to teach me how to be an architect really one has to have and this is uh something i tell people now who are applying to graduate school you need your own agenda 
and you need a strong sense of what you are you are trying to do, and you go into that place uh, armed with your own questions, and you have the tools and the resources and people there to put it all together. But if you're waiting for education to be delivered in a packaged way to you, at least Harvard was not that kind of place. And so that was a complete shock to the system, I think, when I when I got there. So that was part of my collection of, of uh, seeing how other people were accessing the same set of resources. So David came from Columbia background, and also I think he worked quite a while for Stern. I had no outside architectural uh, office experience before arriving there. So I, I was put in the spin cycle for quite a while. You said that you went to UPenn for um, environmental design? Yeah, it was called right? Design of the Environment at that time. And they did not want to, I think they've changed the name since, but that was an effort to make architecture understood as, a, as a, uh, something that spanned landscape, urban, design and architecture and then they wanted to make no separate distinction between the design fields even product design but of course then in graduate school they make you separate those things at least at that time it's interesting um we entered uh we entered harvard uh at the same time so we started in the same class and and the studio environment definitely lends itself toward uh classmates getting to know each other very well and as austin had mentioned uh, I had come from a slightly different background. I already had a certain amount of um, architectural focus at Columbia, and I had some work experience. So I was confronted with a bit of a, a shock in a uh, from a different way in that I had come to Harvard with actually a very clear set of ideas of what I thought architecture was, the ideas and values of architecture. The big surprise for me was that at Harvard, there was a completely different positioning in terms of uh, the theory and understanding of an approach to design and to architecture that was sort of walking into uh, a completely foreign camp. And so um, while tools are certainly helpful going into um, graduate school, they can also be the source of um, you know, a, a, a huge interruption in that um, I faced uh, going into a school, uh, and I didn't really realize this completely until I was well into the program. Uh, I went into a, a school that just had a completely different um, pedagogy and theoretical positioning to the one that I had sort of been nurtured uh, with at Columbia. And Columbia was really the formative years of my more sophisticated understanding of architecture, design, and theory. And so uh, it was uh, a moment that really rattled me um, at, at, at my very roots. In the end, though, uh, it's it was one of the best things to happen because I was forced to have to reconcile a lot of uh, architectural values. And I think it allowed me to um, have a great breadth of perspective and, and mostly forced me to have to really think through to be able to defend where, uh, where my positions were. Well, do you think Harvard was, um, did it have a specific dogma that you had to adhere to? Or you felt like individually, every person there had to be sort of, you know, all your preconceived ideas and, and what you've learned before had to be torn down and then you had to be sort of rebuilt back up. What was, what, was there a, a certain doctrine that you kind of 
had to, you know, adhere to, or was it sort of every person for themselves and just make your own way? Yeah. Well, I, I think one thing, I don't know if Austin and I were in that many studios together. I think we're going to have similar ideas that our first year was extremely rigidly dogmatic. What do you think? Yeah, it was, uh, there was a very strong European bent at the time, right, David? There was, uh, yes. Rafael Maneo was the chairman of the department and he brought in his, his academy of European architects uh, that were kind of advancing his very strong personal driven view of how architecture should be thought of and how it should be taught. That was a, a very uh, strong foundation and a ground that he laid there. But of course, the average American or, or, or whatever country you're coming from and entering into that program were not necessarily prepared for it. So it seemed, certainly seemed like a very strong dogmatic approach. And we were uh, designing types of architecture that were coming from, you know, Italian Renaissance traditions, and no one could figure out why and what were we doing this for? What was the point of it? I mean, it's still arguable now what what it was for, but I think we have a lot of um, more perspective then. And they, they honestly, they, it wasn't not a very uh, a well explained ideology. Um, it was just thrust upon us. Everyone was had to kind of sink or swim and try to understand. But it was an experiment. It was very much an experiment that semester that we, and uh, even for, for Harvard and for Maneo himself. Yeah, mixed results on that experiment. Do you think it helped? I mean, how did it shape your professional identity? I mean, was there any emphasis on, you know, once you become a practicing architect, this is what you have to, you know, do and focus on? That definitely came across over time, as you saw how many areas that people had branched out in. Uh, there were different points in, at Harvard where they were bringing in um, speakers from well outside the boundaries of architecture to talk about how they explored space and understood the internal spaces of the body as a surgeon, things like that. There, there was definitely kind of coming in from many broad angles. But uh, that initial experience was, I found, ultimately useful because it was at that time, it was still in a very, uh, they're still dealing with the question of postmodernism. And funny enough, I think those questions became, were still central to quite a few of the projects that I worked on. They did turn out to be very relevant for me. Yeah, it was a time that was, you know, that first year and that period for first year students, it was, there was very little latitude. It wasn't open or progressive at all. There's very little latitude for doing work outside a certain set of values or principles. I think it was very helpful because it was very clear what the agenda was and very, um, and what the area of valid research would be. There was definitely valid research and invalid research. So if you opted to go within the boundaries of the valid research, you could gain a lot of depth. And if you opted to try to explore outside and invalid research, you really were forced to develop really deep arguments as to why. And in the end, in that first year, there wasn't really a lot of tolerance for working outside the those boundaries was there a modernist canon that they espouse because you know my graduate school my focus was on 20th century art and there was definitely a modernist canon that you had to know and absorb and sort of internalize and then later on you could either stay within those bounds or you have to find a way to react and fight against it but you certainly have to know the canon, the art historical canon. Was there such a thing that you had to sort of internalize yourselves? I think one had to really understand a kind of European perspective on postmodern thought. 
in architecture. And yeah, there was a there was a canon that evolved over time that Maneo even uh, taught a course that people jokingly called it my favorite buildings. So he was there was no other it was not really history. He would just profile some significant buildings from various eras that he felt were uh, worthy of close study. So that it did come and then of course through theory and other courses, history courses, modern architecture courses that would convey a sense of the canon, at least for that first semester. That The, the teacher at that time was, uh, it was named Massimo Scolari, and he had an absolutely classical point of view. So that's what was so, created so much disjuncture. You were studying these canons of modern architecture, but he had people proceed in their first designs from an absolutely classical position and was even gave us these uh back then there were like blueprints of how to put bricks together one by one and various brick patterns that would show up in the classical language how you would turn a corner and then the things we were asked to design were a portico a uh, design an arcade and it would it, we were people were confused you know this was the time where gary and uh um Peter yeah, Peter Eisenman and and all these. Uh, what am I? What, what's the what's the name? <laughs> no, Michael no, the Graves. the architecture that everything was tilting and uh, collapsing. It looked like it was collapsing in on himself. Uh, Coop Himmelblau. Um, it was already three eras ago, so I don't yeah. remember. Well, that I mean, I, that's the that's deconstruction. Yes, that 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 one. That one. Yeah. yeah. In looking back, it really instead of really being like the literary criticism of postmodernism in architecture, deconstruction really ended up just being another formal extension of another postmodern language. I think importantly in the in the uh, realm of the teaching, seem, these deconstructions seem to be saying, I mean, it, to oversimplify, seem to be saying that things don't need to look stable. And we, we actually can build in a way that things don't look like they're traditionally things stacked on top of other things in a very stable fashion. But for him to go back to classical examples and have us work off of those sort of classical origins of architecture seemed like a complete time shift for the, the students entering that, that semester. That was the kind of atmosphere that we arrived in. It was very confusing. People would bring up to him, but look at this example and this example, Louis Kahn and Frank Gehry. And then he said, well, there are many very famous and very bad buildings. And that was, that was it. <laughs> and then you were expected to to uh, carry on from there. They didn't fill in many of the blanks. Well, now that you are now teaching architecture, actually you've both taught uh, design while you practice architecture. Is there a different way of teaching design now that didn't exist before? Is it more of a hand-holding exercise or not? I'm teaching, I have only taught undergraduate architecture, which is a completely, I think, completely diff ball game. Uh, they're being taught history and theory and so on, but it is at a much more fundamentals level and so so is the design as well working on fundamentals like right now we're designing the next semester set of problems and they're just dealing with things like scale mass and void and the effect of light they're not in a way it's not more simplistic because those things are still profound at any level in introducing those topics they have to kind of work from ground up to be able to use their intuition and historical examples and precedent i think it's very much more in an exploratory mode 
you're not expected to know a canon already. It's about teaching the fundamentals as it is in any area of study. And of course, an undergraduate program, a good one is going to develop um, a solid background in fundamentals. And then in a way, going back to our first year in graduate school, I think there's a similar idea in that they wanted us to have a very clear fundamental knowledge of the classical principles as a foundation, um, have as a tool to understand other movements later. I think now in teaching architecture, there has been a, a gradual shift from looking at history for precedent or for abstract diagrams or principles. There's been a, a gradual shift toward the mechanism or the, the derivation of ideas coming more from an analysis of program and data. So there's been this kind of subtle shift that organization and form making can be derived from various types of multidisciplinary analysis of program, of social factors, economic factors, lots of data, and that data can drive form. And I think it coincides probably with a lot of our own age becoming more and more driven by technology and data. And I think the sacrifice has been a little bit less significance placed on historical values or historical meanings uh, that might come from illusion. It's a different type of approach. And I think it's one that really we could begin to see the start of as we left graduate school. And then now there's probably a shift more toward that as the emphasis and history and language and historical diagramming is probably a smaller part. Whereas when we were in school, I think it was the reverse. So you're saying that we, we live in a, a historical time where history is less emphasized? Less, uh, what about culture? Uh, less emphasized. Previously, the lens of culture was through illusion, through looking at historical reference. And today, the lens is more shaped by a data-driven or a scientific programming type of logic that's less questioned, you know, and, and, and it's also derived also from computer software so much being able to generate form almost independent of uh, humanistic or historical types of parameters or inputs. It's, it, it's more abstract geometric and mathematical input. Form is being produced almost independently because the tools are still young enough that they exert more control or a larger control than, than was previously developed when it was more um, hand-based. What David is talking about, I think, is the more general point, was that probably was the last gasp of trying to reinforce a highly European historical narrative of architecture and to say how, uh, underline how relevant it was and how all architectural conversations must be an extension from that platform. Whereas it's true right now, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily ahistorical, but to say there are so many other sources where forms and architectural spaces and architectural relevance can be generated from, and that in fact our lives, patterns of, of living, and the things that have become like active drivers in our lives have extended so far from some of these historical eras that it's uh, you're, you're almost running the system backwards to start from that to say that all architectural language has to be uh, answer. The history first, there are a lot more important factors that uh, one can extend from. And so I think it's so maybe from a, a from one side, one could call it it's less historically based. But on, from another side to say there are many more influences, richer, uh, many more valid starting points.
What's really interesting about your career, Austin, is you've had significant amounts of time working in Asia as well as in the U.S. I'm just wondering, through the various projects you worked on, did you have to develop a, a certain cultural fluency to toggle back and forth, or was there like a uniform approach? Uh, for me personally, I think just you're entering any job, you're entering a cultural situation, and that in those cases, working overseas, especially, there was some kind of structure to it. In one case, for Shintendi uh, in Shanghai, it was a Japanese construction firm, but their Singapore division working in Shanghai for a Hong Kong developer. So right there at the very inception of the project, and it was in a joint venture with an American firm. So the to understand the uh, those that kind of construction of of different players, who the stakeholders are, and what their interests are, I think was not only relevant; it was critical for survival to know what what are we doing? Why are there so many different uh, conflicting opinions, how to mediate between these kind of opinions and to find a design direction through it, or sometimes having to accept a wholesale you know, change in direction to understand the why that had to happen. It was, I think, important to look at all the cultural influences. Many of those influences were, were very cultural because given the, the structure of it. But also organizations have, have different cultures too, depending on which organizations are relating to one another. To, to see them on a, um, a kind of landscape of different players in motion was, uh, I think, critical to every project, especially the overseas one, because they did have these uh, multiple parties. I think one thing that I realized living in Hong Kong was how essential the place is as a hub. And what do you think is unique about Hong Kong as a sort of a landing base for a working professional? Well, I think that kind of gateway to China has it's kind of used that as a as a selling point or its main value. I think it truly has been that for a very long time and still is quite relevant now. I think now there's a lot of interest in making it less focused on, on Hong Kong from depending on which uh, angle you're looking at, it. but it has functioned that way. And so therefore, a lot of the Western influence or gain understanding and then uh, Hong Kong serving as a bridge culture that could mediate between the two because has been a very productive and rich background and successful. What were some of the projects that you were particularly really thought they were exciting projects? I worked on one main project the whole time, which was the temple, which was the reason why I went there. As interesting as other aspects of uh, Hong Kong architecture are, I don't think I would have gone for a housing block, for instance. This one was going to be developed over a number of years. It was from the ground up. It was a major new temple complex. I had an interest in Buddhist principles from the beginning and architectural uh, Chinese architectural history. And you needed both. You know, it was a friend who brought me on board and he said, this is a, this is a once in a lifetime experience. So if you're interested in any of those things, you should come. So that's what brought me from the US to Hong Kong for so long. How long did it take? And what was the scope of the project? It was to be a, a Buddhist temple. And the background is that Chong Kong, Li Ka Xing, the, the, the tycoon had a conglomerate. The original business was based in, um, in real estate, Hong Kong, many, many developments. It continues today and in China, uh, but he had extended his work into overseas energy companies, communications, and, and so on. But there was not yet a public pro bono project for Hong Kong that was uh, really had his name on it. There was a medical school in China. He had donated money to many, many institutions over time, but not really something that was for the people of Hong Kong. 
and also expressed his own personal interest, his own personal drive in, in Buddhism. So uh, there was this project to create a new Buddhist temple and a center of learning. And he had a plot of land in Taipo in the new territories. It was an undeveloped property on a, on a mountain promontory overlooking a, a harbor. That was the entry point. When I arrived there, it was all overgrown grassy hillside there. So that was the scope of it. It took probably a year of when I, at the point that I arrived, planning and design and approvals, and then depending on how you count it, three to five of actual construction. And then there was additional works because of the nature of the project. A lot of the needs were evolving. There was there's a giant um, 80 meter Guanyin statue, the goddess of mercy, standing on a hillside over there. And just recently, recently meaning that as of a couple of years ago, they added a museum in the base of the statue. That was never planned. They're still finding new ways of, of using it and understanding how to connect with the public over time. What is it like to design, I guess, a sacred space versus, a, you know, more, you know, secular spaces like office buildings or a residence or anything well, like I that? Well, I think that, um, you know, a lot of people talk about wanting their architecture to be timeless. For many, that in many situations, that's a preference or that's a personal design philosophy. But in this case, it's part of the brief, make it timeless. And very specifically, we had to address Tang Dynasty architecture. It was very explicit. This shall be in the style of the Tang Dynasty. Well, uh, the Tang Dynasty is is generally received as one of the most vigorous times, depending on how you characterize it, but one of the most vigorous times of Chinese cultural development. It was very cosmopolitan. There were influences from many cultures being absorbed at the same time. There was a strong formation as a in learning, in uh, public, uh, public affairs. You know, every, everything was at a strong point of development. And in architecture particularly, the language of beams and rafters and the connection to joinery of the architecture itself at that time had achieved a very vigorous state, meaning that the extensions of the eaves were uh, very pronounced and the architectural elements had become more precise in the way that they were uh, in the connections. And then afterwards, there's a very clear shift to them becoming less uh, less functional and more and more decorative. So by the time you you arrive at the, the Qing Dynasty, which is the architecture of the uh, Forbidden City. You have a, a lot of the bracketing and the extensive architectural features on the outside not really being as functional as they had been in the past. There were more elements for uh, appearances and for grandeur, more than they were the active engineering or elements that are were being figured out. So I think that the, the Tang Dynasty represents that, that point. And uh, in, in the cultural development, as well. And um, I guess the reason I'm asking is, you know, I came upon fine art through the Catholic Church. I went to Catholic school. So every week we had to go to mass. And, you know, the program of the church, you know, everything sort of was working towards a communion with God, right? So the sculpture, the stained glass windows, the the architectural, you know, the nave, the apse, all those things were in place for centuries to create a, a sense of communion and of bonding. And you could even see that in, uh, you know, I guess the temple in Jerusalem where there's a clear laid out plan of the outer court, the inner court, where the area, the priest could only, so there's a hierarchical order and then there's a sense of progression as you get closer to a certain architectural element or space, uh, you feel closer to to your God. And um, does that exist in Buddhist temple design? Yes, and uh, 
it kind of extends from the imperial design. Chinese model has always been uh, courtyards rather than going higher and higher in a vertical model. I mean, a Asian architecture in, in, in general, like Korea, Japan, to the, the nature of the precinct and then passing one boundary into the next boundary, into the next, as you get closer to the to the main temples, more of a horizontal series of, of sequences. And that kind of um, model starts with Chinese imperial architecture. And then with the introduction of Buddhism, the emperor is switched out for the, the Buddha. The uh, spatial formation is basically the same. It's not fundamentally different from imperial architecture, but um, the precincts and the courtyards remain the same. The model remains the same, so that you're entering through a series of gates on a central axis. So that that is part of the continuous language of temple architecture that we did have to respect or knowingly deviate from. How does the use of materials play into that sense of timelessness and I guess the the beyond? Uh, well, in this case, it was a very, it started with a very basic decision. You know, is it going to be a modern structure, steel and glass, concrete, kind of going in the, maybe the Ando direction? Or was it going to look like something from the Tang Dynasty? You know, how are we to interpret that? And that was, um, there were many uh, different options put forward, but ultimately that was an executive decision. It was going to be steel, in order to get the wide spans and the large scale that was called for in a, in a major temple like this, but it was going to be all clad in wood. The whole building is, is just that, is steel clad in wood. And that was a decision to have it look very much as a, uh, a traditional setting in the end. And this was uh, largely a client-based uh, decision. David, you've been to the monastery. What did it feel like when you were um, in Boston? I think the development of that of the Tang Dynasty architecture was very successful. I mean, it, you definitely felt in the planning and the layout and the buildings a very clear and well-resolved sense of that language. There was this other sense that maybe is, is only more apparent to architects that some of the structures clearly, in terms of scale and kind of space, clearly were modern in terms of or just modern in terms of feel. I mean, it, it's interesting because I think that there's that implicit contradiction in what Austin was describing in terms of a modern, efficient concrete and steel structure clad in wood to be authentic to a certain idea of language. I think it's interesting to look back and there is a thought in certain wood temple architecture in Asia, ancient temples, there's an idea that not to make them so that they would endure forever, but this idea that they could, they would be rebuilt at certain intervals as they collapsed or burned, but rebuilt in their identical form. And that sort of sense of renewal was their perpetuity. But, you know, along the same way, I was going to note before, you know, this idea of sequencing, it's interesting because we could look at ancient Egyptian temple architecture and ancient Greek architecture and see the, the processions of courtyards until we go to that sacred house where man has decided that his or her gods live. Just one final thought, uh, you know, this idea of uh, this contradiction of material on the cladding versus the actual structure of the interior. You know, when we think about it, certainly, though, it's not a modern conception. I mean, we go to the Romans and the Romans were trying to mimic the Greek stone temples, but instead decided to use their own form of concrete to make them more efficient, to make them bigger, to have longer spans. And, uh, and so, you know, we shouldn't misunderstand this idea of a cladding to represent a certain language and history with a different infrastructure or different structure within to be modern. It's something that we do today, but it's something that was done 2000 years ago.
now that we sort of at a juncture of um, architecture and fine art, and I just kind of want to shift to Austin's photography and his practice of taking photographs. How did that come about? Did that start while you were living abroad? Yeah, I've always Some taken background photographs, especially uh, after architecture school. I, I enjoyed photography even before that, but um, in architecture school, it became more of a conscious process of selection and why you're shooting something. And just to be fully clear, I don't I don't really consider myself a photographer in a classical or professional sense, except that in that way of selecting views, because architect, uh, photography has its own language. Are we headed to talking about? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I want to talk about your book, the stuff I saw yesterday, because it's an homage to Hong Kong, but I think yeah. it's also very um, uh, personal. So that yeah, that's the spirit in which it was. Uh, they were taken. I think it was after that. You know, ten years in Hong Kong it made a very d difficult decision to leave. That I was going to come back to the United States, and a lot of people end up going to Hong Kong as a experiment and end up staying. You know, for for decades or their entire lives. And so I was at sort of that point, which which is it going to be? And uh, when I realized I was going to leave, many of the most ordinary or mundane aspects of living in Hong Kong suddenly seemed to have an incredible poignance to it and really invested very strongly with the feeling that this might be the last time I ever see that. Is that worth documenting? Is that worth recording? And often I felt, you know what, it is. I think I would like to spend some time sitting here and just see how would I how would I best capture that and why why am I capturing that? So those all those questions come up through photography and now with a smartphone and an Instagram account, we are all photographers with a with a with, with a public and potential following. I wasn't looking for a following, but I was interested uh, showing to my friends and family, you know, those things that I found so memorable and miss very much in Hong Kong and uh, often didn't know why. That was really interesting too, to be driven. How often are we doing that? To be driven by one's own curiosity. I think like there's something about that man or there's something about that tree that is intriguing at this moment. And to spend, so that was part of the premise also. I had a kind of mixed bag of work at that time. So there was more flexibility and say, what would happen if you invested one or two extra minutes to something that you found interesting just in the course of walking down the street? And so that, that created a kind of space a little, a little space of exploration. And that created this uh, running log of photos. And then by the end, when, when I had hundreds and hundreds of these, someone suggested, hey, why don't you put it all together in a book and you can write a couple essays explaining thematically what they're about. And it puts a, some closure on this time in, in Hong Kong. It certainly did that. It was a wonderful personal project. And now looking back, Hong Kong almost literally exploded after that with all the you know political upheaval. So what I thought was a kind of relatively apolitical uh, look at very mundane things in, in Hong Kong, actually now in retrospect, seems like another, almost another era. So it is actually a document of a, a particular moment in Hong Kong before politically uh, charged activity would, would change it forever. So uh, it's kind of interesting that way, how even something with no real political agenda is uh, somehow takes on a different tone when you look at it in retrospect. Yeah, let me ask a question. Well, I think that observation alone, that it, it it's really become this record of what Hong Kong was prior to quite a significant moment when, when protests occur and, and really uh, with government changes and actions from, uh, from mainland China, that Hong Kong 
since since that time has really entered into a, a different moment. It's certainly a reason for anyone listening to go and find your book, buy your book and look at it because it really <laughs> is this uh, important. It turned out to be this important moment just prior. And so even though you, you say you're not a photographer, I mean, I would disagree. But I think that we could if we say for a moment that photography really is an art, you can take a hundred artists, a thousand artists or 10,000 regular people, put them in the same position at the same moment in time, have them take a picture of something and they will all be different. Because I think that when right. you take a photograph, as you said, you were, you know, you think uh, in your own mind, make so many decisions about what's important in this shot. What am I trying to capture? But I think also in taking a picture, you're, a person gets a chance to say, how do I understand this? What am I doing? And what do I make sense of it? I mean, every photographer brings a certain number of biases and a certain number of questions that he or she is trying to ask. And so with that, uh, along those lines, what would you say, what are some of the questions you're trying to answer? What are some of the frameworks in your own mind that you have when you take that extra minute or two and compose a photograph? I think some of those were developed in the actual themes that uh, are collected in some of, I, I tried to write a few essays that related them. And so uh, those themes, for example, one of them is called cut and paste. And it's the idea of how the extreme compression in Hong Kong, because of the uh, topography, you're almost going immediately from ocean to mountain. And then there's a very highly uh, developed strip in between that is where the, the, the city can be built on flat ground or on reclaimed ground. And then you're right up into the mountain, the, the steep hillsides. And so that feeling that of constantly seeing almost flattened perspective as you're looking up into the mountain or down into the ocean and layers and layers of constructed city in between the, the enfolding of ocean, of mountain green, and all this highly dense developed land in between. You are often, I was often struck by seeing this kind of collage effect and you don't necessarily notice it because it's such a normal part of Hong Kong life. But when you deliberately frame and highlight that effect, you can see it's everywhere. It happens all the time. So that was one emergent themes. The other one, there's a whole section on the uh, banyan tree. Very unusual instance of the banyan tree, which has air roots. So it is extremely opportunistic. It will grow on the top of some kind of outdoor concrete shelter that had been built for utilitarian purposes, it will start to take root there or it will lean onto it. It will reach out and find support from any any surface around it. So it can grow in these fantastic ways. I mean, almost, um, you know, surrealist like ways when you really look at them and how they how they're being supported. Often there's no visible means of support. You can't even understand how it's standing when you look for structure. But then you see, oh, it has this multiple reinforcements going out in all directions. Also consider that a lot of them are being cut down because of, in the times of, of typhoon, they sometimes fall over because they're very, they're ancient things, they're aged things. And uh, sometimes they will come down in a storm and end up injuring people, but then there's always overkill. And then the landscapes department in, in Hong Kong will make a flat decision to go around chopping them all down, which is uh, really not necessary and undermining the whole feel and, and history of place. So you start to notice one thing on one level. They're also often considered sacred trees. So you'll find impromptu or even more formal altars placed at the base of these old banyan trees. And they're being chopped down. So 
interest on one level, you pull on that, you start tugging on that strand and you find it connected to many other related topics and the way of, the way of life there is all uh, knotted together in a specific way when you look through the lens of this tree. So that's kind of what the images are about too, looking through lenses, different ways of looking, what you start to find. I found the city to be such a contradictory place. It is a place of extremes. I think your book, there are moments of stillness, but also of incredible mobility. I think now looking um, from, you know, a pandemic perspective, um, you know, there's some, a lot of photographs that you took where there are no people. So it feels like, it feels very current. You know, there's a one photograph I've, I saw of a shot in the subway where everyone was sort of spaced out evenly. And I thought, well, that kind of speaks to us right now. So it was just interesting how these images live on after the fact and whatever decision you made to take that photograph or the framing of that photograph, it, it right. takes on a that, different That one dimension. in particular, each person was evenly spaced and each person was on a, a mobile device, how like all alone together in that, that, that sort of spirit. Yeah. COVID. That sort of sounds like our current existence. Well, I, I always like to wrap up about future plans because I feel like, um, you know, when everyone is on relative lockdown, you want to sort of plan for the future and see since we can't travel or, or we want to travel or we have certain things that we want to set in motion, um, um, what are your Well, I realize looking back at what, what amounts to a career, it's, it's hard to put those points together at some point, but it's really uh, about following different projects that have emerged on the radar screen and just going to that project. There are a couple prospects that have appeared now, and I expect to put full attention to them. But at the same time, I think the teaching has really been a wonderful uh, reintroduction to the United States and has actually also been something continuous through various phases. I've always gone in on reviews, things at the local universities, wherever I am. So that'd be wonderful to continue. So I'm going to try to do some version of that where there's practice, there's some some teaching, always keeping a hand in teaching. What about your photography? Are you still, are, can we expect oh, I would love stuff to. I saw I don't, I don't, Whether that too? means taking it to another country or right now it's uh, taking root a little bit. That project had to be set aside, obviously, because of change in uh, venue. But um, little elements of Berkeley, it's kind of re-noticing things, re-noticing certain recurring themes. Takes time. I'm happy to uh, let time work that out. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, I'm still shooting, but a lot, a lot of them are much more family, family shots right now. But uh, yeah, it's thinking, how does that, how does that project travel? Well, I just want to thank you for your time. David, do you have so any questions many. for Austin? I have so <laughs> many questions. We need, we need to allocate maybe a, a trio or two of episodes to, <laughs> to really fully unearth all that Austin can kind of talk to so many people about and um, have to do with architecture and photography. And while we were in Hong Kong, we took a number of walks uh, through Hong Kong. And there's this layering of the history of Hong Kong partially seen through his photographs that I, I'd be so interested to, to ask Austin about. And so I can't think of any one question, but I think that without going and there's this whole other topic of uh, we talked about specific still images and there's this whole other topic of how narrative and time and we talked about moments of history and, and time that are also in his photographic works and and uh, we didn't get to touch on that but maybe my last comment would just be this this idea that everyone should take a moment and search for things i saw yesterday the book and 
pick up a copy and uh, and look through it. Thanks for that. Absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree. And thank you so much. And, happy New Year uh, to you too, both to of you. Soon, and happy and, New uh, Year. Thanks so much for the, the chance to talk with you. Mm -hmm.